Welcome everybody to the 33rd episode of the Struggling Scientist podcast. This is a podcast by scientists, for scientists, anybody science adjacent, and perhaps even hobbyists. My name is Zanna, and I'm here with my co-host, Jerome. Hi. Today, we have another um, episode with Dave, Dr. Dave Spire, and it's a surprise episode. Not so much for our listeners, but definitely for us, (laughs) (laughs) because we don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. So let's start. So Dave, why don't you tell us what is this episode going to be about? Now, first I wanted to say that this, of course, was due to popular demand. But then I would start with a lie. (laughs) (laughs) I just pressured Jaron to allow me to uh, talk about one of my favorite subjects, and that's eukaryogenesis. Ah. So uh, where do eukaryotes come from? And um, now there are people that have theories that this, this... already started out at the beginning of life together with the prokaryotes. So these are archaeons and bacteria. But most people now know that it's a rather recent development compared to prokaryotes that were Mm -hmm. around from 3.8 billion years ago. But if I say recent, you still have to say 1.8 billion years ago. So recent, (laughs) relatively speaking, you could say. But it took 2 billion years, according to most people, before eukaryotes evolved. And uh, there are two main uh, theories, you could say. Um, The archaeozoan, the older theory, that says, okay, you have an an archaeon, and that became complex, more and more complex, started uh, to have internal membranes and a nucleus, etc. Really a pre-eukaryote, you could Mm say. And that pre-eukaryote evolved the capacity to phagocytose. And lo and behold, what did it phagocytose? Well, an alpha proteobacterium, and that's the mitochondrion and... Yes. Oh, presto! <laughs> this I've definitely heard about. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so there we have the eukaryote. The, okay, and that evolved into Leica, the last eukaryotic common ancestor, and all present-day eukaryotes, whether these are trypanosomes or malaria parasites or plants or algae, or animals such as us, came from that one. And uh, uh, I don't agree. I don't think (laughs) uh, it's happened that way because there's an alternative, and that alternative is the symbiogenic theory. And a symbiogenic theory says, okay, from symbiosis, certain things appeared. So symbiogenic. It's, mm-hmm. it's due to the fact that an archaeon and an alpha proteobacterium had to live together that all the eukaryotic characteristics, or most of the eukaryotic characteristics, um, can be understood. And why do I like that theory so much better? Uh, first of all, because I stumbled into it with one of my own theories. You have to be honest. And uh-huh. <laughs> I have to say, yeah, I... I I came up with a theory, and that was a symbiogenic theory, uh, for one eukaryotic characteristic, and that's the peroxisome. So peroxisomes, every eukaryote has a peroxisome, and the few that don't have also lost mitochondria, so they don't count. Okay. Uh, Don't you agree? (laughs) A eukaryote without a mitochondrion, that's not a real eukaryote, come on. Okay, okay. And it's a a derived state, you could say. So... um, the proxisomes, I think you can understand from symbiogenic uh, perspective. So that's why I got interested in these kind of theories. 
And now, of course, I have to invent all kinds of reasonings why um, a symbiogenic theory is superior to the old archaeozoan mm -hmm. model. So let's start and demolish the archaeozoan theory. You <laughs> okay, already start okay. laughing at Let's demolish something. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> so how do you do that? Well, first of all, um, the examples of archaeozoans that people said, ah, but this is the pre-eukaryote without a mitochondrion, but for the rest, it's it. These are all derived states. We now analyze them and we know from uh, their genomes, they had mitochondria, but lost them. Mm. So these are not the real ancestors. No, they're derived states that look like ancestors. And this kind of confusion I always um, uh, refer to as uh, CAF. That means the contemporary ancestor fallacy. So you see something around, it looks like the kind of intermediate you expect, and then straight away, ah, that must be it. But of course, you're looking at things from a rather strange vantage point, because we're now 3.8 billion years further in evolution, and also these intermediates evolved. Mm -hmm. So these are derived states and not the real ancestors. And secondly, there's something strange with this idea that you begin with an an archaeon, and it becomes more and more complex on its own. And that's a very old kind of prejudice. Uh, we all think, yeah, evolution goes into the direction of more and more complexity. But why? Why would that happen? Bacteria and archaea are still around, and they're doing fine, believe me. After we have <laughs> disappeared, archaea and bacteria will still be going uh, on for a very long time. So there's no intrinsic tendency towards greater complexity. But it still happens. We see very complex organisms. But that you should explain due to evolutionary pressure all the time evolving. Now, there's no intrinsic pressure for an archaeon to think, well, you know, it's a good idea. I need an internal membrane or I need a nucleus <laughs> or something. There should be a driving force. Eh? There should be advantages. Mm -hmm. And if you look at archaea and bacteria, you hardly ever you see some kind of internal membranes, you see, but never something that comes close to a eukaryote. So what could be evolutionary pressures that allow from a symbiosis of an archaeon and a bacterium, slowly but steadily, the um, evolution of a real eukaryote? So you must find these kind of evolutionary forces from the symbiosis. That's what I think. Mm. Then you have more tiny steps, and that's the way evolution works. Still, the outcome can be gigantically different because a eukaryote is really, really different from an archaeon or an alpha proteobacterium. Mm -hmm. But the steps, the intermediate steps, can't be too big. And there's no intrinsic tendency for the host, as, the, as it is called, the archaeon, to become more and more complex. So let me now, because you don't look convinced, Suzanne, and I... Well, yeah. I was wondering, like, why do you think you don't see those intermediates then? Um, okay, that's, that's, that's a very good point. I think that um, during that kind of evolution, maybe we're really lucky and we will find some kind of intermediates, but I think that all the intermediates have um, haven't stood a chance to make their living after they um, were followed by a more complicated one that was much more efficient. 
So you don't see these kind of intermediates anymore. And I think that actually the process went rather rapid as well, because I'm now going to try to convince you about uh, what kind of evolutionary forces led to a lot of uh, eukaryotic adaptations and real eukaryotic traits and, and afterwards you can say no i don't believe it but then we'll have a nice discussion. and when you say rapid do you mean a hundred thousand years well i don't know exactly but for evolution on evolutionary terms i don't think this will be 10 or 20 million mm. years and you you have to remember that these are still prokaryotes and the prokaryote lifetime eh, you know the doubling time yeah. of a prokaryote isn't comparable to what we see uh, with animals for instance so that you also have to take into account so let's say a million years mm. or something in evolutionary terms that's really a rapid process mm. okay uh, but here i'm speculating eh? but now let's speculate about the evolutionary driving forces that would be nice okay so um i think you start out with an archaeum and you start out with a bacterium. They had a pre-symbiosis. Now, a symbiosis is always exchange of something. Something that one of them can't use and the other one can and the other way around. Now, I think the exchange actually, but, but now I'm getting into details. Let me, let me first... Um, where does the, the, the theory of symbiogenesis really start? That's with the so-called hydrogen hypothesis in 1998 by uh, Muller and Martin. Now, I don't believe that their specific model is correct. I don't think it was hydrogen exchange. This is the exchange I talked about. But this was the really, um, really the first example of a real symbiogenic theory in nature. So he's started out with an archaeon and a bacterium and he says okay if they have to live together then slowly but steadily they evolve the things that we now see in eukaryotes and that's a major breakthrough that's a paradigm shift but i just don't believe his specific example because he was influenced by um, the eukaryotes nowadays that have hydrogenosomes hydrogenosomes you see i don't like <laughs> to pronounce things that are not normal in uh, the world of mitochondria. And, but these are also derived states, according to me, due to horizontal gene transfer. They aren't old, they aren't. So he was misled, I think, in that respect. So what's the exchange I think that occurred? It's the exchange that we still see in eukaryotes. Now, you know your basic uh, metabolism. So what goes into the mitochondria, for instance? Well, um, things like pyruvate, and mm. then pyruvate is further metabolized in mitochondria and completely oxidized. And sometimes other things go out to the cytoplasm. Uh, again, not ATP, ADP, yeah? that's, that's what's somewhat more weird and that's later. So probably, and that's my favorite model, um, you had, an archaeon and a bacterium living in an environment with fluctuating oxygen. And the archaeon couldn't use uh, oxygen, but the alpha proteobacterium had a complete respiratory chain and could. Now, when there was oxygen, all good, everything goes into the alpha proteobacterium that secretes something for the archaeon. And where there's no oxygen, then it's the other way around. So that's the basic idea of what was the pre-symbiosis. Mm -hmm. Now, then 
um, because that that uh, kind of um, uh, symbiosis becomes more and more intense. And there are archaea, uh, archaea, I should mention, of the Asgard uh, film that can have large extensions. And most people, well, most people, me and a few <laughs> other people think that these large extensions are there to make exchange of metabolites much more easy. And then you can imagine, hey, if these become longer, then things can become engulfed, et cetera, et cetera. And due to a kind of accident, uh, these alpha, alpha proteobacteria end up on the inside of um, uh, the, the, the host. So now you finally have the two, the merger of the two prokaryotes at the beginning of uh, the eukaryotic clay. So far, so good. Do you still think, well, this could have happened? Or are you already very critical? Come on. No, you're... I can still see it. I can uh, still see you... it. Okay, so. I actually have a question about yeah. the derived states. What do you think led to just the derived states? Just by chance that it happened or? No, actually it's interesting that um, because eukaryotes were so enormously successful and you get um, structured environments of eukaryotes. Mm. So some of these uh, derived states, for instance, happen in parasites where eukaryotes uh, parasitize other eukaryotes. Mm. And in the gut, there's no oxygen, but there can be, for instance, hydrogen. Uh, there are many um, states that are derived because now nature becomes much more complicated mm. with the evolution of the eukaryotes. So these kind of situations. Mm. And we know that a lot of uh, eukaryotic organisms become really simple again. Mm. Eh? Some parasites have practically lost everything. But you know that they evolved from Leica, which was a pretty complicated organism. So that's what I mm. mean in that case. Okay, okay so uh, now for our uh, main event. What about the driving forces that led to all these kinds of eukaryotic uh, adaptations? And here, most people say that I go completely overboard <laughs> because I reduce practically everything to one driving force. And Jaron has the unpleasant experience to being locked up in a room with me. <laughs> so he knows that I'm now going to talk about reactive oxygen species. Yes. Ta da! Of course, of course yes. I'm, I'm going to do that. So, what, what happens? You have um, an organism, an alpha proteobacterium-like organism, that uses oxygen as the final acceptor. Um, on the plus side, you could say it can oxidize practically everything. It has beta oxidation, it can use fatty acids, uh, it can break down um, amino acids, glucose, uh, practically everything. And in a very efficient way. Because if you use oxygen, you really get shitloads of ATP. Sorry to the listeners, but <laughs> really the that, technical that, term. <laughs> that's the technical term here. I agree. So you get an enormous amount of ATP, but of course there's a drawback. Eh? Oxygen is a double-edged sword, you could say. On the one hand, it's great. On the other hand, kills you in, slowly. Precisely, yeah. In the respiratory chain, electrons can be picked up prematurely by oxygen, and you get superoxide radicals, and you get hydroxyl radicals, and and hydrogen peroxide. Ugh. And these can destroy practically everything. And I think that a lot of the things that we see with all eukaryotes are adaptations when uh, you take ROS formation into account. Now, there, can, are, there are two things you can do with ROS. You can either try to suppress them, 
So come up with ways to have less rocks formation, or you can say, hey, yeah, but there's no getting around it. Let's adapt to such a certain extent that you can repair, that, that there are possibilities to live with oxygen. And I think a lot of the eukaryotic adaptations can be seen as either uh, falling in category one, suppressing ROS formation, or category two, getting around the damage and living with ROS. So I'm, I'm going to start with the one that, that um, um, brought me into the symbiogenic uh, camp, you could say, and that's my idea about peroxisome. <laughs> now, okay. So why do I think you can explain peroxisomes when you take internal ROS formation into account? If you look at uh, the way the respiratory chain is formed, then um, electrons come in either via complex one from NADH mm -hmm. or from complexes, you could say, after complex one, like complex two, yes, succinate dehydrogenase, which uses FAD or FADH2 as a cofactor. By the way, the one that catalyzes the first step of beta oxidation, so the breakdown of fatty acid, mm -hmm. also uses an FADH2 cofactor. So um, uh, the, the, uh, the dehydrogenase involved in that one gives off its electrons to the respiratory chain via an FAD cofactor after complex one. With after complex one, I mean that they can't uh, pump protons and they give off their electrons to the same acceptor as complex one, ubiquinol, which then becomes ubiquinol. And we're now going to the technical terms. So <laughs> ubiquinol is the oxidized form and ubiquinol is the reduced form with two protons and two electrons. Mm -hmm. And there are even more complexes that come after complex one. Now, I've sketched now uh, are seen for what goes wrong. Um, if you just switch from one substrate to the other, let's say you have glucose, then the amount of electrons that go in via complex one um, has a ratio of five to one compared to the ones that go in after complex one, because you only use succinate dehydrogenase from the TCA cycle and it's five to one. But if you use fatty acid oxidation, especially if the fatty acids become longer and longer, then that is reduced to two to one. So that's an enormous difference. Many more electrons coming in after complex one. And now you can see that this could lead to a kind of traffic jam, especially if the cell hasn't time to adapt. You should go from one to the other. And you could get, that was what I uh, hypothesized, uh, reverse electron transport to complex one and ROS formation at complex one. And now that ROS formation isn't just of a bacterium, it's a bacterium inside the other organism. Mm -hmm. So close mm -hmm. to all kinds of molecules that could be damaged, et cetera, et cetera. Ooh, that would be a problem. I think that peroxisomes evolved just because you have mitochondria inside the cell, mitochondrial vesicles are secreted into the environment. And this is the starting situation for part of the beta oxidation, because you don't need many enzymes for that, to uh, go into another kind of uh, organelle and reduce the amount of beta oxidation. So you get less internal ROS formation. And in that first article in 2011, I tried to uh, sketch an evolutionary scenario in which small steps allowed 
that to come together in the peroxisomes with catalase, which is a normal enzyme that is made by uh, archaea and other uh, um, prokaryotes as well. So that could work. That, and, and we know from the analysis of peroxisomes that beta-oxidation really is the oldest pathway in there. Now they do more, but that was the oldest pathway. And interesting, in the mean, uh, interestingly, in the meantime, we have now found that the enzymes that catalyze these steps in uh, peroxisomes are the mitochondrial ones, except for the first one, which is different because now it can't give off its electrons to the respiratory chain anymore, mm -hmm. but gives off its uh, electrons to uh, water forming hydrogen peroxide, which is then taken care of by catalase, which gives its name to peroxisomes, yeah, hydrogen peroxide formation. So that really should be different because it does something different. Mm -hmm. But the other three really are derived from the mitochondria. And by the way, that was uh, shown after I came up with the hypothesis, which is always a good thing. Eh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> something you predicted comes out. I'm getting over enthusiastic as you <laughs> really uh, okay. So peroxisomes seem to fit. Now I'm not going into an enormous amount of details, but if you look at, for instance, meiotic sex, you could come up with a theory that this can be explained by internal ROS formation as well. Now I'm going to do that really quickly, and I hope that a lot of the listeners are going to come back with all kinds of arguments why this is <laughs> bullshit, because that's the way. <laughs> science works. But if you look at meiotic sex, then, then actually what you're looking at, you could say it's a kind of repair system. Because um, it helps to get rid of mutations. Um, and we know that um, a lot of the enzymes that are involved in the meiotic sex come from um, archaeal uh, pre enzymes, you could say, that were involved in um, uh, repair of DNA damage using recombination. So meiotic sex really seems to have been um, selected because the amount of mutations went up. And there are, there are people that say the only thing you need to explain meiotic sex is Muller's ratchet. You know, of course, what this is. No. No? no? <laughs> Muller's ratchet. Okay. so. If you look at a, a gene and you look at a lengthy gene, there's always an amount of mutation occurring. Mm -hmm. And Muller's ratchet uh, tells us that if we have um, uh, an amount of mutations above a certain threshold, then slowly but uh, steadily um, the information would disappear. In the long run, that would not be sustainable. Now, um, what are the two things that are important in Muller's ratchet? The frequency of mutation and the length of the message that you need for the complete organism. So a very complicated organism that, that and I'm not talking about junk DNA, yeah, but mm. I'm talking about a real message that has a high mutation rate. Every new generation would contain too many mutations. So it wouldn't yeah. be possible to make a living. Yeah? It mm. would die out as, as soon as possible. One of the things that you could use um, is meiotic sex, because then you exchange parts and there will be in the new generation always an organism that would work. That's one of the reasons why people think 
um, meiotic sacs could be explained. Now, if you look at what happens during the merger, first of all, your genome becomes much bigger. Instead of the genes of one organism, you've got two organisms. So a doubling of the amount of genetic information. Um, I'm, I'm, of course, uh, saying that they have equal genome content, but that's not really uh, necessary. There's, an, um, there's more DNA that you have to protect, that we can agree on. Mm. And secondly, the mutation rate goes up because you have an internal ROS generator. So it's not, uh, let's say, um, uh, one in 100,000 nucleotides. It's now uh, 100 in 100,000 nucleotides. So you have to come up with something that still allows um, the generation of a new generation that's not completely destroyed beforehand by Müller's ratchet. Now, if you want to look up these kind of arguments, you can find them in the PNAS paper that I wrote, in this case, together with colleagues. So it's not <laughs> the crazy person alone. There are a few other people that believe this. And, and I, th I think it's a rather nice model to explain meiotic sex. Most models that try to explain it come up with things that indeed meiotic sex does, but that couldn't have explained why it evolved. And you can't say, well, the cell thought, you know what? I'm going to exchange parts because then there's going to be a bigger chance that I have a nice combination. No, there should be a driving force. Again. Yeah. Okay, so the other Can one. Yeah. Ask, so we're still talking about single cells here, right? So yeah. I guess bacteria on itself deal with ROS by just throwing it outside, mostly. Yeah. Why do single cells not just do that? Okay, so um, first of all, the bacterium, part of the, the ROS formation could even be a mechanism to attack others or, def mm. or defend yourself. But as soon as the alpha proteobacterium ends up on the inside of another cell, yeah, then the whole cell is confronted with yeah. internal mm, ROS course. formation. Yeah. And that's, that's still a problem. Um, and by the way, uh, the spot at which ROS occurs in the respiratory chain differs. Complex 1 seems to go more inside uh, of the alpha proteobacterium, the mitochondrion, while uh, ROS formation at complex 3 indeed is a danger for the host because it's on the outside. Mm. So what's now called the intermembrane uh, space. But, but um, um, so um, that, by the way, is a nice link to one of the other things. There's this enormous migration of mitochondrial genes to the nucleus. Mm -hmm. Hey, if you are close to a ROS generator, then it's better to put your genes behind the safe wall of the nucleus with much higher um, quality repair and, and polymerase that makes less mistakes, etc. etc. Another aspect that you see in eukaryotes that could be explained by internal ROS formation. Yes. So, and then all these antioxidant uh, measures that um, I must admit bacteria and RK already have, but really took off if you look at eukaryotes. Also, ROS signaling. We now know that that's really important in eukaryotes. Eh? Quite a lot of things about differentiation and, and what a shell, cell should do are signaled in the cell by ROS formation. Mm -hmm. So again, something where you think the nucleus itself, why did the nucleus evolve? Well, if you have ROS generation inside something that was much smaller in the beginning, 
So it's really close also to the host DNA. Well, membranes in between could really protect your, your maybe even chromosomes, yeah? layering of proteins over the DNA. Loss formation protection. You see, I go, I'm going overboard. <laughs> Practically everything, it's ROS, ROS, and mitochondria, mitochondria, mitochondria. <laughs> so, oh, that's so, very useful from you. Yeah, yeah, precisely. <laughs> so, but actually, I, I think these are smaller steps, and you can imagine that, that this would lead to the eukaryote that we see today, not from an intrinsic tendency to become more complicated, but from things that you really that make biochemical sense. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm so enthusiastic about symbiogenic theory. You see that I would end up at the final <laughs> point where, where we started out in the discussion. So what do you think? Be very critical, but don't hurt my feelings. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, there's silence now. You're no, flabbergasted. I, I, I like yeah. the theory of them evolving together more. But I'm not sure about whether you can really explain everything from internal rostrum. <laughs> I, I get that. Sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I no, actually, I think this is a good point. So we all like symbiogenic theories, eh, because the small yeah. steps and, and from the fact that they have to work together and I have to be nuanced. Um, there are a few things that, that I think really rostrumation, internal rostrumation, I should stress, was a major factor. But in other cases, you could imagine that it, it, it co-evolved with other kinds of uh, evolutionary and selection pressures. I agree. We are very excited to be able to introduce you to our new sponsor, Jenny AI. Not only does Jenny make our podcast possible, it also makes our life as scientists so much easier. Jenny is an all-in-one writing assistant that has everything that we have been missing in other AI tools. Yes, first off, unlike other AI tools, it actually finds accurate information in papers and cites its sources. It does not make things up and only uses real verified information that you can then also check the source of. Second, it's a writing assistant trained for academic papers and helps you write your paper by suggesting the next sentence or the end of your sentence. Or, if you get really stuck, you can ask it to write an entire paragraph, completely removing the writer's block I so often struggle with when I don't know the right words to make my point. It helped me write an introduction to a paper I've been struggling with in half an hour. It even suggests which papers to cite. You can add your own library or search the entire internet for papers. Just type the add symbol to easily add a reference and it gets automatically added to the reference list. And the last thing we absolutely love is that it has an AI chatbot that can see your document and give feedback on how to improve your manuscript. Or you can ask it questions, such as what are the potential therapeutic benefits of dot 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 and it will search through the papers for you for the answer. I can only say that my stress level has gone down significantly since I started using Jenny. Check out the free version now at thestrugglingscientist.com slash Jenny. And if you love it, use the code SCIENCE20 for a 20% discount. So, but, but in the case of peroxisomes and maybe meiotic sex, these I really like. These, these could be explained uh, mostly by looking at internal rosformation. There are a few others like that the cell became much bigger and that you have autophagy, etc. That where I think internal ROS formation contributed, but it's not the only selection force. And of course, if the cell becomes more and more complicated, other kinds of evolutionary pressures arise as well. Mm. So, but, but I like this, this 
runaway model of things coming up and, and creating new kinds of evolutionary pressures inside this this um, uh, from humble beginnings model you mm. could say so that's uh, but but your critical note of yeah but maybe you're trying to over explain things by just focusing on ross yeah i agree a bit but uh, <laughs> hey let's start out by trying to explain everything from this and then slowly yes. but steadily let's get more <laughs> nuanced but now let's go for the whole hog I also wonder if in this environment where you have both the the, the uh, pre-cell and the and bacteria together, mm -hmm. would you already also expect somewhat of um, adaptation to living with other cells? Because we're still talking about very single cell organisms yep. here. That's a very good point. First of all... Um... Is that maybe also why they didn't deal with Ross to just throw it outside? Because then you kill whatever else is next mm. to you, basically? Well, um, I, I know that if you look at alpha proteobacteria, uh, and these are, of course, also later evolutionary um, uh, examples. Huh? It's not the alpha proteobacterium that went into the symbiosis. Um, or alpha proteobacterium-like organism that went into the symbiosis. But um, they had antioxidant measures, of course. They had to protect themselves as well. Mm. Um, so it's not all antioxidant measures only came up after eukaryotic formation. Uh, also, the archaeon uh, had some antioxidant uh, and, and could use certain um, um, cofactors that were dependent on oxygen, etc. Um, I talked about the Asgard archaeon, eh, that probably mm -hmm. was the host. And the one that they cultivated needed a few other organisms. So these are really dependent on symbiosis. Yeah. Two of, and by the way, in that case, it's not an alpha proteobacterium. So a lot is still speculation. Uh, but um, you, you remember that I mentioned that this, um, this organism has these strange kind of extensions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That could have been already an adaptation that it uses to have this interaction with proteobacteria and other kinds of uh, um, prokaryotes. We don't know whether other archaea uh, were involved or other bacteria, but they seem to be part nowadays of rather complicated symbiosis in which not just two, but quite a lot of organisms work together to make yeah. the most of the environment. I think these kind of strange extensions that they showed with electron uh, microscopy um, are adaptations for metabolite exchange. So indeed, precisely what you were aiming at when you came up with that question, hey, didn't they already came up with, come up with some adaptations before integrating? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. And actually... That makes much more sense than these kind of models in which people say, yeah, we have a, a pre-eukaryote, that phagocytosis, yeah, no. etc. Mm. And in, in this case, the adaptations were already taking place without um, the integration of one cell inside the other. Mm. So I, I think but that's I, a I necessary... Don't, I don't necessarily only mean with bacteria, I also mean like with cells that are like themselves. So mm. uh, the beginning of a yep. multicellular organism, maybe. Uh, there are clear examples of uh, bacteria and archaea that, that 
already work together, uh, biological biofilms, for instance, in mm -hmm. which bacteria and in, in a lot of cases, a lot of different organisms, but also there are situations in, the, in which we see that um, a quorum sensing, mm -hmm. sensing and yeah, that bacteria sense how many of them are, are present. Eukaryotes do this as well, but prokaryotes do that as well already. So um, yeah, you're right. There are, of course, a bacterium or an archaeon should know something about uh, whether um, um, the environment is full of competitors or uh, you could also say collaborators. It depends mm -hmm. on what they do. But yeah, there, there are sensing mechanisms for that. So, and, and these um, are also um, used for further adaptations during eukaryotic development. Yeah. So, so I actually have a question along the lines of so in this case, we're talking about uh, one one cell and one bacteria sort of going into symbiogenesis. Yeah. But with the rate limiting uh, aspect, so this is beneficial for both of them, obviously. Would the rate limiting uh, sort of step for the cell be that it cannot take more of the bacteria up? Um, because that would be detrimental because you would have more, much more ROS that it can't oh, keep up with? Okay. No, the, the, the interesting thing is that I describe it as simply as possible. Mm. So I talk about one mm. archaeon mm. and one bacterium. Mm. But of course, it's possible that there was mm. an uptake of many mm. bacteria. Uh, we now have a mitochondrial network, mm. but it can, from fusion and fission reactions, uh, evolve into many mm -hmm. uh, mitochondria. And this could have been the begin state eh, that a few of them were taken up. There's no reason why it should have been just one. Mm -hmm. we, we are re really in philosophical country here. We're speculating. We don't know. And we don't know, for instance, if there, there are people that uh, come up with theories in which you have a syncytium of many of these RK. And, and many nuclei in, mm. inside uh, as an intermediate state. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happened. We only know that Leica, the last eukaryotic common ancestor, had peroxisomes, meiotic sacs, mitochondria, uh, and was already like a real eukaryotic cell. But how did that arise from? We know that there are a few things we know for sure that the host was an archaeon, mm. and we know that. The progenitor of the mitochondrion was an alpha proteobacterium like organism. Mm. And that's the limit of what we know. And how that, that interaction occurred, yeah, one of them ended up inside the other. So that's another stuff we have to explain. But you can come up with syncytia, you can come up with very complicated um, symbiosis where many other organisms were involved. We really don't know. We know about Leica because we can reconstruct that much better than we used to because we know many more eukaryotes that are highly unrelated. So we know that the diversification has been enormous. But now you can take trypanosomes and you can take plants and you can take uh, dinoflagellates and plasmodium. And, and these are really unrelated. And what they all have in common that, you know, have is what Leica already mm. uh, had. And that's the only thing we know. And from Feca, so that's the first eukaryotic common ancestor, a really completely hypothetical organism to Leica, 
there's a lot of things we just speculate about. It is surprising, though, that one organism outcompeted them. Well, it could, if you talk about Leica, it could have been a population of Leica. So this is always difficult in reconstruction. But, but we, you can reconstruct this population to a large extent, and that outcompeted everything that went before in as far as other intermediate eukaryotic yeah. like stages. Not, of course, the enormous <laughs> uh, diversification of, of bacteria and, oh. and archaea. Archaic. So that, that, uh, but you're right. That, uh, but, but that's the way it happens. Unless uh, some people uh, really still hope for this, <laughs> we would suddenly identify a real intermediate. So not these derived states where we can show, where we can show that they had a mitochondrion, huh? like Giardia uh, lamnia and Trigomonas vaginalis, all of these that don't have mitochondria, but now I have mitosomes or hydrogenosomes. Hey, this time I pronounced <laughs> it. Uh, so so um, maybe, and that would be an enormous breakthrough, but that would be a, a difficult moment for me if it doesn't have a mitochondrion, of course, if it really resembles a eukaryote, but really without a mitochondrion, that all my theories go out of the window. Ooh, that would be a sad day for Dave. Sad Dave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but you never know. That, that. So, but that means that at least um, it is a real scientific theory. We predict certain things. So, an intermediate like that would really show that, yeah, there was an intrinsic tendency for things to become more complicated, despite that there wasn't a, a pre-mitochondrion around. But I would bet against it. That that's. Uh, not too much money, of course. <laughs> a reasonable amount money. of money. A reasonable amount of money. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. I still had a question regarding sort of you, at least, I don't know if you actually said this, but um, that some of the, the symbiogenic cells with the, the, the probacteria, pro yeah. uh, at a certain point, you reach a derived state where they actually lost their that mitochondria or that bacteria. Um, so you're talking about uh, the trichomonas examples? And, I think so. Uh, so, Jan, uh, oh, you still want to know a little bit about how that occurred? And, well, because yep. this is the example where they would lose their mitochondria, right? Yep. So they had it at a certain point and yep. then now just lose yep. it. Would the environment that leads to that be something along the lines of there's no more oxygen that they don't need it? Oh, no, that's, that's yeah, that we, we can... Um, okay, there's still uh, some debate about whether horizontal gene transfer can really explain all this, mm. and uh, I'm quite convinced that it can, but let's take a few examples here. So what happened? So let's, for instance, say, um, uh, I'm not an expert, huh, but, but um, you have a, an environment, uh, for instance, inside the body of a large animal, uh, where there are parts of the body that don't contain high amounts of oxygen because it's depleted by all the bacteria and all the other organisms using it up, mm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. And that means that there are still interesting environments where there is plenty of stuff that you could use because it's inside another animal, but there's no oxygen you can use. Now, there are many bacteria that can uh, live uh, very nicely in uh, under anaerobic conditions. So not low in oxygen, but really no oxygen. Now, let's say that you have a eukaryote family 
um, that also uh, lives inside these kind of uh, animals. Um, but hey, it still has a mitochondria and it still needs oxygen. Mm -hmm. You could imagine that, uh, first of all, it, it needs not much oxygen because uh, the respiratory chain has a really high affinity for oxygen. If you look at cytochrome C oxidase, that can really scrounge up the lowest amounts of oxygen imaginable. That, that's so uh, interesting if you do uh, experiments, for instance, um, uh, with isolated mitochondria. It really doesn't need much. It's still able to do that. Uh, but then let's say that um, it loses certain parts of the respiratory chain and it still has cytochrome C oxidase, but it has an alternative uh, complex one, for instance, that straight away gives off its electrons um, to another intermediate. All of these kind of uh, possibilities are there in, in eukaryotes. And then you can imagine that if it takes up just one or two genes via horizontal gene transfer, that it doesn't need cytochrome C oxidase anymore, and it starts using um, uh, uh, hydrogen as the final uh, electron acceptor um, and emits hydrogen. So I, I should say protons as mm. the final electron acceptor. And, it's a, and um, this really happens in uh, environments where a lot of the prokaryotes use these kind of systems. Mm. So if such a prokaryote dies, or if there's transduction by a virus, etc., this could end up in such a eukaryote. So that's what most people think happened with a few of these uh, mitochondria that loses, that lo lost their uh, mitochondria, and for instance, um, have hydrogenosome. But also in the case of mitosomes, where they don't have a respiratory chain mm -hmm. anymore, but just an empty sac that once used to be an active mitochondrial, a mitosome. These, of course, don't need oxygen anymore either because they don't have a respiratory chain anymore. So these kind of situations where you end up with something that was derived from a mitochondrial, but really does something completely different. Yeah, these. We have perfect examples. In some cases, we know that mitochondrial-like organelles are retained because the iron-sulfur clusters are still made for the rest of the cell. For instance, cytoplasmic ribosomal proteins need an iron-sulfur uh, protein, and that is still made by uh, the remnant of a mitochondrial. Mm -hmm. Because they are so intertwined, now we can't do anything anymore without mitochondrial. Do you hear this? You listen. <laughs> you can't do anything without your mitochondrial. So there are all kinds. There are all kinds of restraints here that don't allow just anything. Hmm. But yeah, uh, in the long run, there are now even uh, uh, eukaryotes that have lost that uh, aspect as well and do this in a different way, uh, taking up something else from horizontal gene transfer uh, that allows them to um, do this function in the cytoplasm as well. So there are all kinds of these intermediate states, and they always happen in environments where these kind of genes could have been picked up from prokaryotes that already do it that way. Okay. Are you... Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, but but uh, there are still people that defend that these are 
um, old uh, adaptations and that these hydrogen osomes weren't derived from lateral. Uh, Bill Martin, for instance, I think is still convinced that his original uh, hydrogen hypothesis is uh, true. And who am I to disagree with Bill? But I disagree. I <laughs> but I, he, of course, was enormously important because he came up with the first real symbiogenic model. Mm. And that was, as I said, a paradigm shift. So yeah. Whatever happens, um, that was a major contribution. So, even... Dear listeners, <laughs> even Suzanne looks totally unconvinced. No, 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 no. no. Okay. I think that's just my, my standard face. Okay. It's, it's, this it's, is what I podcast with. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, um, I, th I think we're, we've yeah. been talking for quite a long time. I have, I have a final question. Okay. It's a, it is a bit of an off-topic one, but you're, of course, the evolutionary expert. So. Well, we not expert. <laughs> I love to dabble in evolution. I so, think it's wonderful. Yeah. We have talked about that a million years is quite a short time in evolutionary time. Yeah, rights, it's right? a longer time for prokaryotes than for animals, of course. Eh? If you talk about our um, times of coming up with a new generation and you compare that. It goes to, a bit faster. That goes a bit. But still, a million years is not that much. No. Well, I've uh, this morning actually yep. read an article that yep. says that we're losing our little toe as humans because of evolution and also our wisdom teeth. Do you think it's actually possible to see evolution in humans? Yeah, of course we're hey, we're animals, and that means that. But like, yeah. in a lifetime? Not in a lifetime. No. That could never happen no. because it's now. If people say that it that you can see it during your lifetime, then they don't mm. understand how evolution works. No. Because the only change that can occur is due to mutations, and then you give something. Um, a little bit different to the next generation. But in a lifetime, that would mean Lamarckianism. So Lamarck had this theory of you change according to uh, the things you feel during your life, you could say. So a, a giraffe would get a longer neck because it has been trying to get to these top branches and it doesn't get there. And during its life, it changes. But that's not the way evolution no. works. But how long do you think it would take to lose our to lose our tiny toe? Depends on the pressure. Uh, <laughs> well, it's not. First of all, um, if we talk about Darwinian evolution and, and Darwinian evolutionary change, um, then you should first of all remember: yes, selection is a really strong force, mm -hmm. but also there are neutral processes. A lot of it's just dumb luck. Uh, and bottlenecks, etc. It's not all about perfect adaptation. So there are just these two forces, chance and necessity, as Monod used to say. Mm -hmm. And the necessity is now that you really have selective forces. And chance is that, uh, let's suppose that uh, one of the three of us, oh no, two, you two, for mm -hmm. that, because then we uh, at least have new generations. <laughs> so, but you go to an island and the rest of humanity is destroyed. Yeah, these things happen. Mm -hmm. But you are spared this terrible fate and uh, the complete future of humanity comes out of you two. Well, you have certain very specific um, things that most people don't have. And then afterwards, we reconstruct and we say, ah, yeah, that's of course evolution. No, it was sheer chance. 
that Jaron had an enormous amount of hair <laughs> uh, flowing. I'm really jealous, dear listener, because I'm bold. And now um, we, we get a humanity that's much more hairy than we are at the moment. And that was due to chance because hey, of the island effect that you were. Okay, so it's chance and necessity. But let's say that you want an answer. So how quickly would that go? Well, the wisdom teeth, um, I, I'm not quite sure. If we um, uh, still have civilization and we don't need to chew very hard with these kind of, it's probably not unthinkable that they would disappear in about 200 generations. So, yeah. I'm spitballing here, mm -hmm. that's clear. And the small toe, I really love my small toe. Why, why should it disappear? <laughs> but uh, clearly that sometimes it goes faster. Uh, but the only way that we can look at that is if we uh, have very good and well-preserved um, fossils, for instance, of humanoids. And then we can check for certain uh, uh, tendencies. Yeah, I thought the article was a bit weird because we don't we don't have half of a population missing their tiny toe, for example. That you know of. So <laughs> yeah, precisely. You can't look in, inside. I think the, the beginning of evolution to see that that's impossible to see. Yeah, mm -hmm. you can sometimes predict a little bit, like what I just did. With, yeah, with the, uh, the wisdom with the teeth. Yeah. yeah, so. Um, but at the same time, there's no pressure to. Precisely, it it, it doesn't have to happen. No, because we and, all remove them and we're fine. Uh, no, the, the interesting thing is that people always say, yeah, you can predict because there's more complexity. So the tendency was that we got bigger and bigger brains. Mm -hmm. And then people, um, they, they, when they draw the, the humanoid of the future, it has got an even larger brain and a smaller body. Who knows? There are people that say, no, uh, actually that bigger brain was due to sexual selection. And of course, yeah, now it works out nicely and it gives us the, but it, it, it just dependent on the fact that women, when they chose, they had uh, a large influence on uh, sexual selection. It's not only uh, how males fight amongst each other. <laughs> and, uh, it's also women that, that said, no, 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 you might have one, but I still prefer the other one, which is, and maybe it took very intelligent women to choose between uh, men. And one of the things they liked was intelligence, not sheer force. So there mm -hmm. are people who think that this led to this. This, by the way, is an example of a very rapid process, much too rapid for normal evolutionary force. It really, in, in practically no time, a few million years, that brain became so big that it now leads to all kinds of problems for women still during birth. Years. Right? <laughs> what? Still a couple million years. Yeah, 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 but still. But but you can't predict that. There are also people that say, yeah, we will become dumber and dumber because now artificial intelligence will do and we'll have tiny brains. It's a fool's game. You don't yeah. know how it will work. I but think it's very difficult to see evolution happening except for when you're already quite far into it. Precisely. Mm. And, and the interesting thing is uh, people sometimes say, yeah, but you can't prove it because you can't see it. Yes, we can, but we have to look at prokaryotes or very simple eukaryotes. So there are these, these nice cultivations of bacterial cells where they keep on just um, uh, 
recreating uh, new ones time after time in the laboratory. And there's this very long culture of bacteria, E. coli, for instance. And they can reconstruct that due to chance, certain things occurred that changed these bacteria. And then you can really see evolution at work. And it's again chance and necessity, just as we talked about. So the only thing that you can say is also for animals such as ourselves, chance and necessity will work in the future, but that's not enough to predict the evolutionary future of uh, mankind. And there's another thing um, uh, which is really important, and that for us as human beings, cultural evolution at the moment is much more important than Darwinian evolution. Mm. And our culture and the things that we make and the things that influence us and that we are filled up with from birth in our brain, that goes with an enormous speed. Cultural evolution, that goes during lifetimes. Biological evolution doesn't. Mm. No. And, and, and actually, that's really exciting. So uh, a Greek person from uh, 400 years BC um, was completely the same, biologically speaking, as us, but he wouldn't understand a lot of things that we talk about and that we understand because uh, of cultural evolution. So that's much faster than so talking utter, utter about hobby. a little toe <laughs> and about the wisdom. <laughs> I don't think we have to worry about it. No, <laughs> no, no, no I, I don't think so. Either. Okay. Nothing else? No, no. So did we explain everything, dear listener? I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> but it was fun. Yes. do you think so? It yes. was fun to have you again. Uh, yes. okay. Thank you so much for doing this again. Yeah. Hey, I kept on talking. It was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or, or, or reasons why this is absolutely not true, of course, <laughs> you can reach us on our, via our website, struggling-scientist.com, or via our email address, struggling-scientist.hotmail.com. Definitely also check out our amazing t-shirts on the website, and um, check our, out our social medias. Jaron, which ones are those again? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. Yes, all of them, I think. Yes. We don't do TikTok. We do not do TikTok. Okay. That's well. where we draw the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. Wait, we also, please leave us a review on Spotify I, and Apple and iTunes, iPodcast, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts and, uh, and, and Spotify, indeed. Yes. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.